Hey everyone, welcome to episode 80 of the Mimi B Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Mimi Bouchard, and you're listening to the Mimi B Magazine podcast, a lifestyle podcast all on health, relationships, sex, career, and self-development. This podcast is designed to entertain, inspire, and to motivate you to become the best version of yourself possible. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey guys, I am back here with Tyler Jean. This is his second time on the podcast and we got so many questions on my Instagram for him. He is a naturopathic medical student in Portland. Welcome, Tyler. Thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you so much for having me again, Mimi. It's great to be here. I know. I'm so excited. We got so many questions from our listeners or from our Instagram watchers and I guess listeners, and you're such a hub of knowledge when it comes to health. So let's just do a little Q&A today and give some people some knowledge. All right, let's do it. All right. The first question is about lectins. What are lectins exactly? Should we be scared of them? Um, You know, I haven't personally read The Plant Paradox by Dr. Gundry, as we were talking about before we started recording, and I know you have. So what are your thoughts on these and should we be scared of them? Yeah. And so for those that know my approach to nutrition, you know, I really focus on the bio-individuality that surrounds nutrition and that there is no one diet that's right for everybody. We are all, you know, slightly unique individuals. We have different goals, uh, but there's so many confounding factors that really impact our ability to respond to what we're putting in our body. Um, So when it comes to lectins, uh, this was brought about because there's a lot of people nowadays that's have digestive issues, they have chronic inflammatory issues, the rise of autoimmunity. And so Dr. Gundry came out with this book called The Plant Paradox talking about lectins. And lectins um, are kind of like these sticky proteins that are found in a lot of plant-based foods. So things like nightshades, um, seeds, certain seeds, nuts such as almonds and cashews, all of your legumes and mini grains and some fruits too. And so those fruits are going to be ones that have um, more skin, like your apples and berries and stuff like that, because that's where you're going to find the highest amount of lectins. And so lectins are part of the plant's uh, defense system since they can't really defend themselves. And so, um, you know, Dr. Gundry kind of talks about how they can be poisonous and kind of cause food poisoning in animals that were to eat them. Um, And so, you know, there's this question of, are we meant to consume these plants that contain high amounts of lectins and what kind of havoc is it wrecking on our digestive system and, you know, causing more inflammation in the body since so many people deal with chronic inflammation. So I guess the question is, is, you know, how much truth is there to that and like who should be avoiding them and like who doesn't need to really worry about it. So, you know, when it comes to lectins, you know, I think, you know, If you were to go on a really low lectin diet, it is going to remove a lot of beneficial plant-based compounds that contain fiber and other micronutrients. Granted, a lot of these other plant-based foods, they contain phytates or phytic acid, which are also people refer to as anti-nutrients. So they can like bind to certain minerals such as calcium and zinc and iron um, and make it really hard when you're digesting those foods to actually... um, assimilate and, you know, absorb and utilize those minerals found in that food. So there are ways around that. And so there's certain preparation techniques to minimize the amount of lectins in your food. And those are things such as soaking your, you know, grains or soaking your seeds or your legumes. Um, Also sprouting, that's more popular with your grains and with your seeds, as well as your beans, you know, chickpeas and lentils, you can sprout those, as well as cooking them and fermenting them. That's all going to help break down not only those phytic acid nutrients, those anti-nutrient compounds, but it's also going to reduce the amount of lectins. So, you know, when we're thinking about lectins, who may it not be best for? Um, you want to think about, like I was mentioning at the beginning, those people with more leaky guts. So that's this increased intestinal permeability uh, that compromises the gut barrier, uh, where these undigested proteins and these lectins can actually bypass the gut and react with our underlying um, immune system. So we have these prior patches below our small intestine uh, and can cause 
inflammation, systemic inflammation, leading to more of this chronic inflammation that we talk about. So, you know, you're thinking about gut health, which is a big topic nowadays. Um, so, you know, a lot of focus is on like removing those foods because it's disrupting health of the gut. But then there's all these, you know, protocols that you're hearing about now and all these supplements that you can do and probiotics to heal the gut. Um, but you know, removing that offender in the first place could be beneficial. So, you know, people with autoimmune disease have higher amounts or higher rates of increased intestinal permeability, that leaky gut. So those with the autoimmune disease, chronic inflammation and digestive issues, you know, maybe want to, um, you know, consider, you know, reducing the amount of lectins in their diet maybe really consider the way they're preparing them or work with a qualified, you know, functional medicine doctor, naturopathic doctor to kind of do a systematic elimination diet and removing those lectins from the diet to see if they feel better, if they have less flare ups, if they have less amounts of inflammation. Um, and so, you know, that's where I think it really tailors to the individual and that, you know, it can be a real blanket statement. And then everyone's like, do we completely eliminate lectins? But I hope that kind of like, I guess, sheds some light a little bit on like how each person is different. And I think it really comes back to the the individual from a more like whole body holistic perspective and the status of their gut. Mm, so if you have a more sensitive gut, you probably should be watching out or doing kind of an elimination diet to even see if it has an effect on you, right? Yeah, I think it should raise some flags that maybe this could be problematic. And maybe this is something I want to try. And then I also kind of just mentioned there's better ways to prepare these foods that you may enjoy, uh, such as soaking them, sprouting them, you know, cooking them and mm. fermenting them. So those are all ways to help lower the total amount of lectins found in your food. Amazing. Oh, it's so hard with the nightshades thing. I like, that's the one thing that throws me off. Like I could easily not eat grains and you know seeds even but like eggplant and I love zucchini and tomatoes like those are my favorite veggies yeah I mean and even things like the beloved blueberry and you know apples which we hear so many good things about I would say more berries which have so many you know benefits to them you know the skin is what contains a lot of those lectins. And so even people on a low lectin diet may avoid some of these very beneficial foods. And so, you know, my ultimate approach to nutrition is how we can, you know, gain tolerance and be able to enjoy, you know, a diversity of foods, not trying to limit our palate and what we can't eat. So, you know, it's finding that right approach for you. And, you know, it all comes back to, I think, the gut. And so there's so many people talking about gut health and how to strengthen the gut. And, you know, there's a number of things that you can add, you know, to your dietary routine or in supplement form or whatever that may be. But you also want to think about what are those things in the first place that are disrupting, you know, normal gut function. So do you think the elimination diet or the FODMAP diet um, would be beneficial to kind of anyone out there that has an inkling that their gut is not in perfect shape and kind of wants to know what is causing discomfort in certain areas? Yeah, I mean, so a low FODMAP diet, and for those that don't know what FODMAP stands for, it stands for fermentable oligo dye mono and polyols. Um, and these are um, saccharides. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that this is more of a therapeutically prescribed diet by practitioners. Um, and it's usually used for IBD, so irritable bowel disease, so people with Crohn's, colitis, and IBS. Um, and following a low FODMAP diet um, can greatly improve symptoms and a lot of, you know, relieving a lot of that um, distress that, you know, is in the gut. So um, a lot of times you're removing a lot of these fermentable fibers and foods that contain a lot of fiber. Um, and so, and, and one of those things too are a lot of your sugar alcohols that a lot of people are not aware of. And I know sugar alcohols are becoming more prevalent, especially on keto-based diets. Um, but those can actually ferment your bacteria and your colon can actually ferment and break those down, but it can cause unwanted gas and bloating and things that are just not fun to deal with on a daily basis. So, you know, I don't think a low FODMAP diet is for everybody, but there are people with those conditions that see extreme benefit through that. But I wouldn't see a low FODMAP diet as the, you know, end all be all per se. And maybe you do get benefit by removing those foods, but then 
you know, the next question I would ask or your practitioner should ask, your physician should ask is, why are you, you know, getting that gastrointestinal distress from these foods? And why are you getting so much benefit from a low FODMAP diet? So again, you could have one of those diagnoses that we mentioned earlier, um, or maybe there's just gut dysbiosis. And so really addressing that root cause and focusing again on gut health, which I think is going to be a big topic on today's podcast, um, where an elimination diet, I definitely think is the gold standard when you're looking about, you know, removing food in a systematic approach and removing a lot of those common problematic, inflammatory, and allergenic foods. And those are things such as corn, soy, peanuts, dairy, gluten, shellfish, eggs, uh, alcohol, um, sugar, if I didn't name that one. So, you know, those people will typically eliminate those foods. And, you know, typically it's done under the guidance of a um, physician that is well-versed in an elimination diet. And then there's a systematic reintroduction of those foods after about three weeks. Hmm. Okay. Two things. Sugar alcohols. I love liquid stevia sometimes, not every day, but sometimes if I'm making a little sweet treat, I'll use some of that. Is that a sugar alcohol stevia? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. I don't personally classify it as a sugar alcohol. Um, it comes from stevia glycosides. And so um, you know, usually when you're doing stevia, it is a extract with ethanol usually is the, the mode of extraction. Um, and so, you know, you would add that to, you know, your beverage or to sweeten things. And, you know, there's mixed reviews on stevia. I think there's more positive reviews on stevia than there are negative. Uh, but, you know, I think the source is important. Is it organic? And then if you're doing powdered stevia, because a lot of people will do stuff, um, I think it's, what is it? Uh, Truvia is a type of, uh, mm-hmm. powdered sweetener that is stevia, but they also use like maltodextrin, um, which I wouldn't want to add. And so it's not the best and it's kind of can be cut, um, in a weird way in terms of like additives that they're adding to it. So I would just stick to a hundred percent stevia extract, choose organic, um, if you feel like it's causing a lot of um, GI issues, then it's maybe something to consider as a variable and removing and then kind of that self-experimentation. But in general, I, I would say that stevia is one of the better sweeteners or the better of the, um, you know, it's not really a sugar alcohol, but of, of all those, you know, other sweeteners, it's one of the better ones. Okay, great. And the other thing I want to ask you is, what is like the cause for gut issues in general? Like, you know, we're just talking about healing guts and, you know, what to to do to kind of find out what your gut doesn't agree with and lectins and, you know, all these different things. But it's like, what is the cause of getting gut issues and like parasites and all that jazz in the first place? Is it just eating kind of bad food? Is somebody that that always has eaten healthy their entire life, never going to get gut issues or like what's the cut, the lowdown on that? Yeah. And so it's so multifactorial and our um, gut microbiome is so uh, sensitive to our environment. And so, you know, the food we eat actually influences the selective growth of specific microbes. And if you were to eat more of a, you know, animal based diet, um, you're going to populate, um, one different type of, of resident bacteria versus if you were to eat more of a plant-based diet, you're going to populate another type of bacteria. So, you know, even the food we eat influences our gut bacteria. Um, but there are a number of kind of like hidden reasons as to why certain people have more gut issues. And so some of those things that I feel like people um, may not be aware of are, um, you know, antibiotics. And maybe that's the biggest one that pe- most people are aware of is that, um, habitual use of antibiotics, they really wipe out our gut flora. Um, and so, you know, there's, uh, studies that even show that, you know, there's, there's this, um, misnomer that you can re-inoculate the gut when you, uh, use antibiotics. And so like once it's gone, it's gone unless you're doing some type of fecal transplant. And so, you know, when you're taking antibiotics, it can disturb the gut permanently, for up to 16 months, I believe. Um, so it's a really long time. And uh, it's a concern because 
you know, antibiotics can be life-saving at times and they can be um, a standard of treatment uh, for a lot of medical protocols. But, you know, there's a lot of people too that are just, you know, throwing antibiotics at everything from acne to, you know, an acute sickness and um, don't really know if it's going to actually be beneficial. And so there's this increasing rise of uh, antibiotic resistance, which is pretty scary. But another thing too, is antibiotics are showing up in our tap water, which a lot of people don't realize, especially here. I heard about this. Yeah. So, you know, ciprofloxin is one of them in particular that has been seen uh, in the tap water and is rising and um, is very concerning because we're unknowingly kind of sterilizing our guts in that way. And then the other thing too with our tap water is we add, at least here in the United States, I can't speak for other countries per se, um, we add chlorine to our water to help, um, you know, disinfect the water because a lot of the water, the, the drinking water here in the United States is, um, you know, recirculated sewage water that they treat. And so oh. they use, I know it sounds so bad. Um, you know, they're using chlorine just like we would use chlorine in a pool to disinfect. But the other thing too, well, if we're trying to kill the bacteria in the water, what do you think about if we're ingesting that chlorine in our water? So it's actually disrupting our gut microflora as well. And, you know, it's not necessarily the acute exposure, but it's the chronic habitual consumption of that tap water. And those are just a couple things. You know, there's a lot of contaminants and uh, problematic, you know, pharmaceutical drug metabolites in our tap water. And the Environmental Working Group here in the United States actually has a resource where you can actually search by your zip code what has actually been identified in your water if you really want to know. Um, and so it's pretty alarming if you're to look at it and then it breaks it down and like, what does this mean? What are these compounds? Like, what are the implications? Uh, you can totally go down the rabbit hole with that, but you know, the importance of having a good water filter, I use AquaTrue, um, and it's a reverse osmosis water filter. Um, but I've, you know, also recommend the Berkey and finding something that is, you know, cost effective for you. Um, but I know a lot of people will use like a Brita filter, but that just doesn't quite cut it because it doesn't filter out to uh, a small enough particle size. Um, so mm, I was going to ask what you use. Yeah. So you would suggest the ones that you have. Yeah. The aqua true, I actually wouldn't recommend if you live with some like other people. So I live by myself. And so I, it's good for one person, but if you're doing for a family, um, I think the Berkey filter water filter is really great. I don't know what they have available in the UK, uh, and other parts of Europe, but, um, definitely do some research and, you know, look and see what all they filter out and, um, maybe even ask if they have a, you know, a certificate that proves what they're claiming because mm. sometimes there's companies that, um, they don't necessarily have the, I hate to say this, but they don't have the public's uh, best interests in mind. And so uh, sometimes they'll take shortcuts just to make a profit. So sometimes you got to, you know, be your own advocate and do your research. Um, so yeah, tap water can be one, the food and the an- antibiotics for one, but then also antibiotics in our food in terms of feedlot meats and factory farmed meat where they use a lot of antibiotics typically because these animals are living in their own filth and these deplorable conditions. So they give them antibiotics almost prophylactically uh, to prevent them from getting infections. Um, and so that's another issue that many people aren't aware about when they're eating um, a lot of meat, especially of low quality. Um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are another one, which are so pervasive and so many people just kind of pop, you know, your Advil, ibuprofen without thinking that there's any downstream consequences of taking habitual anti-inflammatory drugs, which I've been in that route. I was an athlete. I used to take them like candy. Um, but you know, they have an adverse reaction on our gut microflora. So other thing too, oral contraceptives, I'll just kind of rattle off some oral contraceptives can also disrupt the gut microbiome. Chronic stress disrupts the gut microbiome and can increase the, um, tight, you know, tight junctions in the small intestines, which increase intestinal permeability. Alcohol, uh, is a big one. A lot of those processed carbohydrates that we eat, sugar alcohols, which we talked about, um, and, uh, metabolic syndrome and people with insulin resistance. So 
there's all these factors that are disrupting and contribute to the health of our gut microbiome. And so it's very complex and it's hard to say it's one thing specifically. Um, but I think it's important to be aware of these things, be mindful of these things um, so that you can do your best to, you know, try to preserve your gut health. But then again, you know, you've probably heard of all these supplements you can take to kind of repair the gut lining, bone broth, all these great things. But I think the most important thing is to remove the offending factor first and then, you know, add the supplements in seconds uh, to kind of rebuild um, the microbial terrain and the integrity of the gut lining. Um, because if you're constantly, you know, exposing your gut to these offenders, well, then things are really not going to get any better. And you're just shelling out a lot of money, I feel like, uh, in terms of those supplements, because you're constantly you know, depleting that, uh, that gut flora and disrupting the the gut function. So. Mm. And if you can, like my advice too, like to everyone listening is do a stool test. I know it sounds kind of gross. I did one. I actually did two in the past six months and it told me so much information on the gut bacteria currently living inside of me. And, you know, my nutritionist that I work with in London, uh, Gabriella Peacock, she's amazing and she can conduct these stool tests. Um, She found out that I didn't have any of the lactobacillus species in my gut. I had none of it, non-existent. I had other good gut bacteria, but the lactobacillus is one of the best, like it's the one of the most prominent good bacteria in people's guts. And I had none of it. So you're going to find this interesting, Tyler. I'm actually on these really intense probiotics at the moment. I'm on day three. I'm doing it for a month. I'm taking um, one. It's like a, it's in a sachet, like a packet, and I take it with water. And there are 450 billion bacteria strains in each. So I'm going to flood my system with good bacteria to try to kind of you know, create this lactobacillus species in my gut this month. That's kind of my update. (laughs) I love it. And yeah, you know, so people think about, you know, okay, I'm very low in lactobacillus bacteria. Why would that be? And so what's been in the news a lot recently is glyphosate, which is Roundup. And glyphosate actually depletes lactobacillus. It's a really big issue. No Uh, way. Wait, what? Can we go into that? What is Roundup? It's what they spray the crops with, right? Yeah, so... um, But I'm in the UK. We're not supposed to be as bad as America here. Yeah, but apparently it's finding its way to Europe. And, you know, there's also... So Monsanto and Bayer, they merged. And they oversee glyphosate, which is the chemical compound found in Roundup, which is a weed killer. And so they use Roundup on a lot of crops that are not organic. And they also use glyphosate as a desiccant uh, seven weeks before, sorry, a week before harvest uh, for a lot of wheat containing products. So we've probably all heard by now, I'm sure that um, at least in the in America, people say, oh, I don't eat wheat in America, but I go to Europe and I'm totally fine. I don't have the same digestive issues. I don't have the migraines. I don't have the inflammation. I don't have the pain or the brain fog. So there's something different about it. What is it? So one of it is, is the definitely the use of glyphosate here in America, uh, but also the way that bread is prepared more traditionally uh, in Europe, as opposed to United States where, you know, it's fermented. So it's actually breaking down more of that gluten. And then also the wheat here in America, uh, it's been hybridizing a way to produce more gluten proteins. Um, and so, you know, when we can't actually, so not only does it have more gluten, but because we're, you know, not fermenting it as long and we're kind of more cheaply producing the the bread, we're not able to actually break it down as well. And it causes a lot of gut-based issues. Um, but yeah, glyphosate is found everywhere now. It's actually found in the drinking water too. So another big concern and why the need to, you know, really, if you can invest in a water filter for your family, um, so that's, you know, to make sure that you're getting clean water and that's just not a, a source that you are, you know, getting blindsided by and being exposed. 
Um, so yeah, glyphosate, it absolutely disrupts our gut microbiome. It impairs our cytochrome P450 enzymes, which are part of phase one liver detoxification. So it actually impairs our ability to detox, uh, from all of these chemicals that we're exposed to in our environment. So it's very pervasive. It's a very big issue and it's important to really be aware, not to necessarily be scared, but do your best buy organic, you know, clean your produce and, you know, really just do your best. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the tap water thing is really like undermined by so many people. I've I've really come to the conclusion as well that I, I just don't want to drink unfiltered water anymore. And I think so many people that try to be healthy, it's like they, you know, buy organic when they can and they eat a lot of vegetables and they, you know, are trying to stay away from processed carbs, but like they're still drinking tap water and it's like just that little switch could be so helpful to your health. And yeah, I, I obviously, I don't think I can tell a difference from since I've, I've kind of steered clear from tap water, but there are just so much research on how insanely beneficial it is to filter the water and just stop drinking tap. Absolutely. But again, I mean, so like right now, um, I actually, the filters, uh, for my water filter are out. So I've had it for a year. I said to order more yesterday, but they're not going to be here for the next three days. And, you know, I'm trying to do my best and like, I'll fill up multiple water bottles when I go to the gym where they have a water filter, but I've been drinking from the tap here. And you know what? I'm like, you know what? For the next three days or so it is what it is, but, um, you know, just goes to show you got to do your best. Yeah. Would you like with organic, let's talk about that for a second. Like if you had the option to eat, uh, you know, non-organic berries, uh, and you wanted to, but they weren't organic, would you? Cause like, what, what's the extent of like, you know, restricting yourself with that? Because I'm right now staying at my grandmother's house and she had berries in the fridge and I really wanted some this morning, but they weren't organic and I still had them anyways. Is that like really bad? <laughs> so, you know, berries are so great. And, um, you know, definitely if you're buying organic, first of all, organic food is more stressed because it kind of has to fend for itself. And because of that, it's going to produce more of these immune compounds, so to say. And we know these as phytochemicals, which are the antioxidants, the, um, you know, these beneficial biological active compounds that we find in plant-based food. And we can't wait. So organic berries have more antioxidants than non-organic berries. They do. Oh my gosh. So people will say, oh, organic, you know, it's not any better. Like it's the same macros, it's the same micros, which is true, but the difference is in the phytochemicals. And so antioxidants are a type of phytochemical, those polyphenols, flavanols, flavonoids, all those kind of things. They're going to be higher in organic because it's more stress. So Mm. to answer your question, if you, because, you know, not everyone can afford organic or they don't have access to organic. So the next best thing you can do, because I'm not going to say, I wouldn't recommend don't eat fruits and vegetables because it's not organic because we all need fruits and vegetables. So the next best thing that I try to, you know, teach people or relay to people is that you can clean your produce. And so you can either use apple cider vinegar, but an even more effective method that is really cheap and inexpensive is just baking soda, baking soda, soda, gosh, Um, (laughs) sodium bicarbonate. And um, you can just put a couple tablespoons, I believe it's four tablespoons uh, in a tub of water and just soak your produce for 15 minutes. And uh, there's actually a link to a study that showed the improvement in um, residual wash off of a lot of these chemicals when you soaked it in baking soda for 15 minutes. And so, um, you know, that's a very simple and effective way to kind of remove those pesticides that are on the outer skin of the fruit or vegetables. It's not going to get to the stuff that is, um, you know, absorbed into the produce. And so a lot of your root based vegetables, since they're a root and they bring in a lot of that nutrients inside, such as your tuber vegetables, your, uh, cassava, your sweet potatoes, your potatoes, your carrots, your parsnips, your, um, beets, you know, those I would always buy organic personally, even if they are quote unquote, you know, clean because they pull a lot of that nutrients in and chemicals too in the soil into the actual um, produce. So you're eating that and you can't really wash that off. Mm, Makes so much sense. Okay. What do you think about nuts? Because I'm so curious, um, you know, a lot of people say that nuts are bad because there's, you know, more mito 
toxins in there because, you know, nuts kind of breed more mold and, you know, you shouldn't have a lot. And like, I personally love nuts and I know that you eat them seeing from your Instagram. Um, what do you think about them? And would you only buy certain types? Yeah. I mean, nuts are definitely a longevity food and, um, you know, setting the blue zones, which, and these are places in the world where people live the longest. And it's a kind of an observational study where they study places where people live over the age of a hundred most frequently. Um, and nuts are very common. And so even in, you know, cardiovascular health, um, you know, nuts are very beneficial, not necessarily a lot, like not, not that you have to go overboard. Um, but you know, including a handful of nuts daily can be very beneficial. Now, you know, lectins can be high in, in nuts, um, and certain nuts, but especially like cashews and hazelnuts and almonds. Um, so, you know, sprouting can be a great way around that and to help break down the lectins as well as those phytic acids, those anti-nutrients that we discussed earlier. So you get more bioavailability of those minerals and other nutrients in those nuts. Um, and then sometimes too, I mean, those lectins can cause stomach issues for people that are sensitive to it. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think it really comes back to sprouting, um, and, um, you know, organic. And then yes, mycotoxicity is an issue in mold. Um, usually it's a bigger problem with, you know, peanuts, I think have, have gotten the most press with mycotoxicity and peanuts are a legume. They're not a nut, but a lot of people think that peanuts are nuts. Um, but peanuts usually contain a high amount of aflatoxin or they can, uh, they typically screen most peanuts for this, uh, because aflatoxin is one of the most potent carcinogens known to man. Um, but aflatoxin and those moldy peanuts most commonly find their way if they do into peanut butter specifically, or more commonly non-organic peanut butter, because they're kind of just taking the, the nuts that wouldn't be a part of the deluxe mix, so to say, and then they grind it up and then you eat it as peanut butter. So that's why for peanuts, for me, if I'm going to do it, I'm only going to do organic. Um, but you know, I don't think it's a big of an issue unless you notice that you're getting histamine based responses to consuming nuts. If you start to correlate that. So, mm, Okay. Good. I, I like that answer. And I don't really eat peanuts as often. It's more almonds, macadamias, cashews. I'm obsessed with cashews lately. All right. So next question for you, Tyler, is what is the healthiest oil to cook with? There is so much information out there. It's overwhelming. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so, you know, I am not a big fan of industrialized vegetable oils. Um, so there are a lot of people that promote, um, you know, contrary to popular belief that do promote, um, in vegetable oils, such as corn and corn oil, safflower oil, rapeseed, canola, um, you know, cottonseed oil in, you know, for cooking. Um, and you know, these, um, vegetable oils are really high in PUFAs. They're polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, and contain higher amounts of omega-6 fatty acids than omega-3s typically. Although canola does contain a, high, a pretty good proportion of omega-3 fatty acids. And when we like, you know, in a very blank, uh, simple way, talk about our essential fatty acids, omega-6, omega-3, we typically say that omega-3s are the healthy anti-inflammatory ones and omega-6 is the unhealthy inflammatory. Um, and you know, it's not that cut black and white. We do need both, but a lot of people are consuming so many omega sixes compared to omega threes that there's this oversaturation of omega six fatty acid consumption in the Western diet. And so it's about a ratio of 20 to one 20 of omega six fatty acids and one omega three. And the reason why we're getting a lot of these omega six fatty acids is because we are getting them from these vegetable oils found in a lot of processed foods that we're eating. Uh, and then we're not eating enough of the omega threes, which you find in, um, nuts and seeds such as like pumpkin, you know, uh, let's see, chia seed, flax seed, uh, walnuts, um, and those are short chain fatty acids, short chain omega-3 fatty acids, not to be confused with long chain uh, omega-3 fatty acids, which are found in algae as well as cold water oily fish, such as salmon, herring, mackerel, and sardines and anchovies. Um, so we need more of those and less of those processed foods. But I like to make this analogy too, that it's a... Um, 
kind of like a game of musical chairs. So we need both omega-6 and omega-3, but there's only only so many seats to sit down for musical chairs. So if we have a lot of omega-6 fatty acids in the diet and they're occupying occupying all the spots, but we're trying to supplement with fish oil, let's say, or we're trying to increase our omega-3 fatty acids without reducing our omega-6s, well then omega-3 can't come to play. They can't come to the party because there's no seats to fill. So omega-6 actually blocks the absorption of omega-3s at high concentrations, which is an issue. So I'm always telling people, yes, you need both reduce the omega-6s, increase the omega-3s. Don't just try to you know throw a fish oil pill in there. But to answer your question to go back, what are the healthier fats? It really depends. There's a lot of people that take a more ancestral approach from a paleolithic perspective, and it's more of the grass-fed butter and lard and tallow, um, which are saturated fats. And so they are better at cooking at high temperatures because they're more stable with heat. So they're not going to break down and rancify, which can cause a lot of oxidative stress in the body, which isn't a good thing. It's kind of like an internal rusting, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, which causes mass amounts of inflammation. But if you don't like using animal, you know, ghee or grass-fed butter or lard, um, avocado oil is my favorite oil to cook with that is, um, you know, from these monounsaturated fats. Um, and that has a really high smoke point of about 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's not going to um, rancify like cooking with olive oil or some of these other oils which have a lower smoke point but i like to typically save my olive oil for dressings or low to medium heat if i'm going to use it um and then coconut oil can also be used for you know meat up to medium heat too uh and it's pretty stable because it's a saturated fat so you know to answer your question in total i would say you know avocado oil from a plant-based perspective and then you can look into ghee and most people do fine with ghee, even with a dairy sensitivity, unless they have multiple casein sensitivities, uh, because it's cultured. So they're removing a lot of those, those proteins that are problematic and people react to. Uh, and then the grass-fed butter and the lard, if you're looking at you know, how our ancestors would have consumed a lot more of these fats, not these industrialized vegetable oils that you know, we go through all these extraction methods now and deodorize and bleach. Uh, in order to get, you know, what is a bottle of canola, canola oil now at the market. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I totally agree. I personally like to cook with grass-fed butter or avocado or coconut oil. And then lately I have not been cooking with olive oil after learning more about that. And I've just been topping uh, my food or, you know, using it as dressings for my salad with it, which is amazing. I used to always cook with it at pretty high temperatures, which ain't good. <laughs> I was just so make the little yeah. So we got a lot of questions about weight loss and binging. So let's just start with the basics. What do you think about weight loss? What should our listeners cut out if they're trying to lose fat? So I think what has gotten so popular now is, and maybe we're going to get to this after, is the keto diet and kind of this higher fat, lower carbohydrate to better tap into body fat and move away from this glycolytic stage where we're breaking down carbohydrates uh, for energy and production of glucose and becoming more quote unquote fat adapted and and breaking down those fatty acids for energy. Um, You know, I think, I mean, you know, when it comes to binge eating, there's this the other side of it, the psychology of eating and developing, um, you know, better relationships with your food. Um, and so that's a whole nother area that we can explore. But sometimes too, you know, the gut and the mind are very well interconnected uh, via the vagus nerve. And they're always talking to each other in a bi-directional uh, way. And so what is going down in our gut and what we're putting in our body is talking to our brain and can manifest in um, many different ways from fatigue to anxiety to depression. Not to say that this is the only sole cause of these conditions, but a lot of times when we uh, talk about mental illness, we just isolate it and say it's a brain issue, but oftentimes we are missing the important component that you know the body is interconnected. So there's also typically a gut-based issue as well. Um, and so I would even expand that to eating and disorders as well and and thinking about the gut. Um, so, you know, 
having that relationship with food and coming at it from, you know, nourishing the body as opposed to some of these more restrictive diets. Um, and you know, I'm really, there is, you know, a lot of people still do calorie counting and tracking their macros. And there is this law of thermodynamics where, you know, like calories in and calories out and, you know, you know, energy is not created or destroyed, but, I think we need to move beyond that aspect. And, you know, the more that we're looking into it, that, you know, we really need to focus and emphasize micronutrients and nourishing our body with whole foods and really remove moving away from a lot of these hyper palatable processed foods um, that are, you know, typically carbohydrate rich uh, and devoid of fiber. So it causes, you know, high, a high surge in blood sugar, it causes insulin to spike more inflammation. Um, and so, you know, moving back to the foundations, I think is just eating whole foods um, and trying to minimize or avoid a lot of those processed foods. And, you know, really ask yourself before sitting down for a meal, you know, what is the purpose of this food for me? Um, thinking about where did this food come from? Um, and creating this better connection with food uh, and being more conscious when you're eating uh, and its role that it's serving in your body. I love that intuitive eating. Yeah. Listen, I I used to do the keto diet. I'm not saying I don't now, but I don't call it the keto diet because I just think there was such. First of all, like I just don't like how it. You know, the keto. T- you you actually you know post a lot of images on your Instagram. Uh, you know, having two meals side by side, and one's like, oh, this is keto, and this one's also keto, you know, and I feel like I love how you do that. And guys, if you haven't already go check out uh, Tyler's Instagram functional dot foods. He does so much health stuff on there. It's amazing. So like, you know, you, you would post something like bacon keto, and then you'd post a big gorgeous plate of vegetables with maybe some organic uh, bacon. And that's also keto. And I feel like when I would tell people that I was doing keto, they'd be like, Oh, like, you're so into health. Like, why the fuck are you, you know, jumping on this bandwagon of like, you know, really just high fat, high protein, like, just non quality foods. And I was always so defensive because I was like, oh, no, like I'm eating like mainly plants and, you know, all organic, amazing produce and like some high quality, uh, you know, fish or some chicken or something. And, you know, for me, that's how I was eating keto because I just thought keto meant being in a state of ketosis most of the time. Um, And I just think, you know, the, the public doesn't really see the keto diet as that. So right now, I like to say I eat mostly like a paleo low carb diet. And I maybe if I'm feeling it, I'll eat, you know, more berries than I should to keep me in ketosis. And I'm okay with that. Like, I don't need to be in ketosis at all the time. I know it helps me with like my performance and, you know, getting to where I want to be with my body. But, you know, I'm just going to kind of start off from there. I forget what I was going going into though. Um, but yeah, diet wise, I think, yeah, intuitive eating is definitely, I think the trick. And I have personally seen the most results with my body when I've been more intuitive. And when you are being more intuitive, that's just a self-love practice. And when you're practicing self-love, you don't really have those cravings to binge and overeat, which, you know, those are the kind of things that really get you to put on a lot of weight if you're eating healthy. Um, and then you kind of just have this big binge. So personally for me, um, you know, the intuitive thing has really, really worked. Uh, and I, I like to intermittent fast as well. Um, I know we're not really, uh, talking about that, I guess in this question, but that's something else that's really helped me with like weight loss, I guess. What do you think about fasting? Yeah, I mean, there's so much science on fasting, both, you know, intermittent fasting and prolonged fasting, as well as uh, time restricted feeding. So just to clarify what some of those different things are for those that aren't familiar with it. Intermittent fasting is typically um, going for a period of uh, a longer period of time without food. And so typically, that may be um, a 16 hour fast, and then you're doing uh, let's say an eight hour feeding window. So most people may be familiar with skipping breakfast and then you're not eating till lunch and you're eating between 12 PM and 8 PM. And then, you know, you're fasting overnight until lunch the next day. Uh, that would be intermittent fasting, uh, more, you know, time restricted eating is only eating within a certain window. So maybe that's like, I'm only going to eat between 
8 a.m. and 6 p.m. more than our circadian window. And so our, we, we are humans of our, uh, our creatures of our environments, and we all have these circadian clocks, which are you can think of as these biological clocks inside of us. And so our um, hormones are regulated by our circadian rhythm. And we have these hormonal secretions, a lot of them that um, are a part of our alertness and awakefulness, as well as getting ready to sleep and also our ability to digest food. And it's regulated by the sun and the moon. So these light, dark cycles. So in um, time-restricted feeding, you're kind of eating within the circadian window of, let's say, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., but you're not eating... um, outside of that. And so that that's another way of uh, approaching of a type of fast. Uh, and then you have like prolonged fast, which is, you know, three plus days without food. And, you know, that should not necessarily be done uh, without the guidance of a medical professional. Um, but, you know, I've gone personally five days without food before and it was no a- way. Yeah. And so I just did that uh, a year ago almost. And, you know, it really, allows you to appreciate your relationship with food and the food that you're putting in your body and the service, you know, the purpose that it serves. Uh, because the first thing I wanted to eat after that was I wanted something nourishing and hydrating. I remember sitting down, I had this big smoothie with berries and greens and ginger and, um, some walnuts and avocado. And it was just, you know, so nourishing, Um, and it almost kind of felt like, you know, it was giving me life. And so, you know, it really makes you appreciate what you're putting in your body as opposed to things like French fries or, you know, calorie packs of like crackers and stuff like that. And not saying that you can't enjoy those every once in a while, but that's not the first thing I'd want to put in my body, um, after a long fast. So the other thing too, and the great thing about fasting is that it really helps lower inflammatory levels. It helps. Um, and it does that because it's helping to balance blood sugar, reducing insulin levels. It also helps balance out a lot of these lipid markers, such as uh, triglycerides, it brings those down. It can help stabilize, you know, cholesterol levels, uh, and it can also reduce uh, C-reactive protein and other inflammatory markers in the body. So it's quite amazing, and it can kind of help reset the body. It's kind of like that reset button. Um, but not everybody can go that long without food, and every person is different depending on, you know, there are certain people that may be more prone to hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar, or they may be on certain medications or have different um, diagnoses that prevent them to be able to do long, longer fasting. But to answer your question, there's a ton of benefits to it and a lot of anti-aging and longevity benefits as well, because when we, you know, go these periods of time without food, uh, we actually turn on these pathways called um, apoptosis and autophagy, where it kind of selectively targets cells in the body that are aberrant and, um, you know, not formed right. And it causes them to self-destruct, which is a great selective way of removing these cells that aren't normal. Uh, But also in autophagy, um, it really helps our body get into this more deep cleaning phase uh, that we're not able to get into when we're in a fed state. So there's so many great benefits. There's so much more to learn about it, but it is important, you know, if you are going to partake in longer fasting to consult with your medical doctor um, about any concerns that you may have. Mm. And, you know, last question, what about binging? Because I know so many girls listening probably have, you know, had to deal with binging and those cravings and the struggle behind binging when they feel like they've been restricted for maybe a certain amount of time. Obviously, the answer would be not to restrict yourself, but then what if they feel like that's the only way that they can lose weight? Like, what would you say on the whole binging topic? Yeah, and I think this is a, it's multidimensional. And I think it also comes back on the individual too. And why are you restricting yourself? And I think a lot of times too, around eating disorders and orthorexia, anorexia, bulimia, you know, we're thinking of, you know, a body image of the self portrayed body image that we're trying to obtain. And usually we're, you know, especially with social media nowadays, we're comparing ourselves, we're always comparing ourselves to others. And we're trying to manipulate our body in a way that maybe isn't natural to kind of fit this one stereotype that society deems as the best image. And so, you know, I think it comes back to, you know, self-love. 
um, and realizing that every person is on their own journey um, and that, you know, it can be really toxic when you're comparing yourself to other people and that, you know, the solution isn't depriving yourself of food to get in this caloric restrictive state to lose weight because you can only, you can only starve yourself or go on a caloric deficit for so long to where your body is going to actually down regulate a lot of hormones to kind of put your body in a survival state. Um, and so it's going to lower your basal metabolic rate and it's going to lower thyroid function, uh, so, so that you will survive. And so, you know, and it's, you can only go so low carb until that happens or so low calorie until that happens. So I think the focus is to, you know, one, you know, have a reality check, you know, you know, I think it comes back to the self-love component, finding yourself, improving that relationship with food and getting help. You know, I don't think that people should shy away from getting help and, and seeing a therapist if that helps them, but also really focusing on nourishing food because not all calories are created the same. And so if you really adopt a really wholesome diet, that's really rich in plant matter, you're going to be giving your body a lot of micronutrients and a lot of nourishment. That's going to really flood your body with life. And so I think that's very important is really focusing to more of the quality of the food rather than thinking about the calories and the macros. And when you're stressing about your diet and you're so meticulous about everything you're putting in your body, you know, to a gram, um, it's stressful. And if your diet is creating stress, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. You want to think of it as a lifestyle, not a diet. And so, you know, every person is going to be on their own journey. And so it's kind of hard to give a, a one size fit all answer, but I think it starts with the individual and kind of having a gut check in a way, um, to really figure out why, why is it that I feel the need that I can only eat so many calories in a day? Or why is it that, you know, I have to hide this and then it ends up leading to binging later because I'm so hungry because I'm depriving myself. Um, but if, you know, there is one thing that you can control, I think it's really nourishing your body from the inside out. Mm, doing it out of love. That's so true. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Tyler. I have one last question to ask you. I ask a lot of my guests this. I don't remember if I asked this too last time. Maybe I did, but you can answer it again. If I, we talk about morning routines on the podcast a lot. So my question for you is, if you wake up one morning on the wrong side of the bed, what do you do that ensures that you'll bounce back and have an amazing day? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, there's obviously certain things that come up and certain priorities that may, um, you know, come first. And so I'm just thinking if I were to wake up on the wrong side of the bed, wake up and it's like, okay, school starts in, you know, 15 minutes, I got to get to school. I don't have time to do my normal routine. Uh, it's just to take it and, and swing. And, um, you know, there's certain things that are out of your control and you can't get worked up over it because, you know, stressing out about something out of your control isn't going to get you anywhere. Um, and just go with the flow. Um, I think too many of us and myself included is, you know, I get, I'm able to accomplish a lot with a lot of structure and routine. And it, and, you know, I really credit that for allowing me to, do so much and as much as I do, but at the same time too, it can be rather restrictive or stressful too, that I have to kind of fit all this in or do all these things and have everything planned out. So sometimes it's really nice to just, you know, in a way, wake up on the wrong side of the bed and just go with the flow, go throughout my day. But, you know, always coming back to knowing what makes me feel my best and that's exercise. If I'm feeling really stressed out, just laying down and just taking some deep breaths, coming back to my breath. Um, and then, you know, surrounding myself with other people that share similar passions with me and, uh, fill my cup up. I love that. That's so nice. Thank you so much, Tyler, for coming back on. Where can our lovely listeners find you? Uh, thank you for having me, Mimi. And, um, the best place to reach me, I'm most active on Instagram. So my handle is functional.foods. Um, and then you can also check out my website, eatfunctionalfoods.org. Um, and you can find recipes there, um, as well as, um, my blogs and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, feel free to reach out over Instagram. I try to, uh, respond to as many direct messages as I can, but, uh, yeah, I try to do the best I can. 
Oh, I love that. Thank you so much. Have an amazing day. Thank you, Mimi.